right, I believe we are live now. Uh, hello, everyone. Good afternoon from the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Sabletooth nations. My name is Jennifer West. I am a settler located on unceded and ancestral territory, which is now known as Vancouver. Indigenous groups across Turtle Island have been discussing music since time immemorial, and we honor that. I am the artistic director of a concert series here in Vancouver called News West Concerts. And over the pandemic, we've started a podcast where we get to talk to very interesting people. And today, our guest is across the pond. It only took about one minute to fly. <laughs> and it is none other than conductor Paul McCreesh. Welcome to our podcast, sir. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. It's great to be with you all. Thank you so much. Um, we'd like to start with a round of spontaneous rapid fire fun questions uh, that are kind of meant to surprise our guests, but don't worry. <laughs> what is your surprise me, I think, as well, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. What is your favorite post-concert meal? Um, Spanish chuleton, really good steak. You know, it's not going to appeal to the vegetarians, but um, you know, <laughs> really good Spanish meat and some really fantastic home cooked fries in olive oil and pimientos de padrón, you know, all this sort of good Spanish stuff. That sounds amazing. And you are actually the fourth musician that answered steak. <laughs> I think sometimes after a concert, you're often very tired, partly because, and very hungry, because often you, you know, you don't, I don't really fancy eating before a, a concert, especially if it's a long performance. Uh, so it's good to, if you've got a restaurant that opens late and the food's good, I'll eat late. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, you have to answer the first word that comes to your mind, Mozart or Beethoven? Um, Mozart, probably. Mozart, okay. And actually, most people have answered Beethoven to that one, so it's good to have someone else in the Mozart club. <laughs> well, it's a little bit like asking which is, you know, which child would you throw overboard if you're about to drown? You know, I mean, how can one imagine life without both of them? But Probably Mozart, if I really had to choose. That's right. Um, here's another one. Corelli or Vivaldi? Oh, God, Corelli any day. I could live without Vivaldi. <laughs> That's a wonderful answer. Um, so we, we're so happy to have you with us today. And you're very known for your period performances, although that's not all that you do, and we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, and so one aspect of your work has been period performance, historical, Baroque and Renaissance performance. How do you define period performance? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, I think it's nothing to do with authenticity. That's a word I particularly hate. Um, part of it is sheer pragmatism, that uh, I don't actually believe the development of music is Darwinian. Um, I think a Baroque elbow is the perfect instrument for Baroque music. and a French L'Oreal is the perfect instrument for a lot of early 20th century music. You know, uh, so some of it is just pragmatic. Um, but I think it's also what I like about the period instrument approach is that we're a rather unusual society because we are actually playing sort of four or five hundred years of music, uh, which is pretty unusual in the history of music when you think about it. I mean, of course, there were societies for old music in the old periods, but generally speaking, people played contemporary music. So I think the great thing about the period instrument movement is it enables us to sort of frame each period of music in a very specific way music. And I think that makes it more of its time. And I think also for me, I'm always absolutely fascinated to sort of try and get under the skin of the composer, trying to get under the skin of the society for which music was written. And that often to me is a very interesting process. 
Now, this is, I want to go based on that because a lot of our young music students that do tune into interviews, we have a couple of piano studios that are regular subscribers to our YouTube and come to our concerts. And some of these students, you know, they're beginning ABRSM level five, level six, where a knowledge of the music of that time and the societal um, background is actually very important. So if you were speaking to a young group of musicians who were learning Baroque music, what would you tell them was important to know about society then? Well, I mean, let's start off just with the musical issues. Um, I mean, some of this is what I call grammatical accuracy. If you're going to play Bach, you have to know how a trill works. If you're going to play Rameau, you have to know how ornaments work. So you can't just assume that because your piano teacher is a fantastic uh, Rachmaninoff specialist, that you're going to know how to actually uh, play Baroque music. And I think there is a certain uh, rule book, if you like, for music of all periods. And that would include romantic music and the use of rubato and the type of fingering or the type of pedaling that might be appropriate for that piano play. So again, it's a question of trying to sort of, first of all, understand how the music relates, how the score represents the performance, which is a big issue because generally speaking, the earlier the music, the more the score on paper has less information. That doesn't mean anything goes. Uh, and I think that's why you have to start looking around the music because there are lots of things that will tell you how the music might have sounded. And that obviously includes the most obvious things like treatises. Um, it includes the way music is notated, the differences between musical notation across, say, Europe, um, the way that musical notation changes even in the same pieces over. So, yeah, there's a lot of information there, but you have to be much more detective. And I think that's that's a really important thing. And again, I don't have a philosophical problem with people playing Bach on the piano. You can make performance of Bach on the piano. Um, and I have no objection to people playing the Artifugue on a quartet of saxophone. Um, you know, I think it's very possible to reinvent music and to use different instruments and to play it in a different way. But I think if you don't perhaps know wh where the original is and what it is you're adding to the mix or what it is you're changing, I think often you're doomed to some sort of failure if it's just a sort of vague, instinctive or sort of rather sort of dull um, repetition of something you might have heard somewhere else. I think it's that constant argument um, that all musicians have, you know, they all say, especially conductors in hallowed tones, you know, oh, but I'm a mere servant of the music, to which the music lover says, well, why does it sound so bloody different then? Um, you know, there are, there's a big process there that, that we have to go through. Um, and I think there is no one truth, but I think the search for a truth is very important. I know that I have become very fascinated with period performance um, in the last five years, uh, really enjoying a uh, shout out to our friends at Early Music Vancouver who have spectacular concerts. Um, and I do enjoy the sound of it. And I, I'm very interested in your answer about that. So thank you so much. Um, what's your, what was your instrumental background or were you a vocalist? Oh, strangely enough, I'm, I was a cellist by training. Um, and I did play, oh, probably until uh, I guess sort of 30, 35 or something. Um, uh, and it's ironic because I think I've made about 60 recordings and there's not yet one recording that doesn't feature a singer, which is strange. Um, so it's been quite useful for me as a musician. You know, I'm quite comfortable if I'm just talking about Boeing's or what have you, my background as a string player. Mm -hmm. I'm reasonably confident 
even though I've never been a professional singer, I know the basics of vocal technique. I'm a, you know, I'm an experienced choir trainer. So I think there's always that. Um, I think it's a conductor's job, actually, to know as much as you possibly can of the basics of every single instrument or, or the voices. And I think we've all sat there and seen brilliant orchestral conductors that cannot give an upbeat that a choir can breathe with. And equally well, we've seen choral directors who are, you know, terribly good at consonants and vocal balance and precision and all these things that English people do terribly well, but can't give an upbeat which an orchestra can vaguely play on. So I think it's important that one tries to get a sort of collective understanding of the basics of all the instruments of the orchestra. Of course, you're never going to be a specialist like it will be, or, you know, I can't play the violin, or, um, you know, I'm, I'm not an oboist, but I hope I know enough to be able to help them to do their job at a high level. Mm-hmm. And what got you interested in period performance? Um, I guess it's just my age, really, because, you know, I went to university in 78, um, do the sums, I've just hit a big birthday. And at that time, it was the sort of beginning of, not the period, it's the music movement itself, but it was the beginning of its commercial success. So in that period of, you know, say, 19... 19- 76 to sort of 86, um, you know, there was a, a, a tremendous growth of, uh, of interest, you know, both in very early music with Monroe and all those people, although a little bit early, probably mid-70s. And then, you know, Christopher Hogwarts' famous recording, Messiah, which I think came out in maybe 79 or something like that, was I think my second year of university. And suddenly, music, which I often thought was rather boring, because, you know, heavyweight broad music can be really, really boring. Um, suddenly sort of leapt off the page in a way which was really quite exciting. And I wanted to be part of that. And I, and I think I instinctively enjoyed the, the challenge of marrying musicianship with scholarship, which has always been something at the heart of what I do. I mean, I've always regarded myself primarily as a musician. I'm a generalist. I'm not even a specialist. I'm just slightly better read than most of the specialists. Um, but, you know, uh, it's, it's important for me, we mentioned this earlier, to sort of get that mixture of brain and emotional content. And I think as somebody who then went on to be, you know, one of the leaders of the sort of slightly second generation of early musicians, um, it was sort of good in a way because we didn't have to be quite so evangelical and we could begin to be a little bit more musical. And it's not to be rude to my senior uh, colleagues, but we could be a little bit less... Uh, be a little bit less Ayatollah um, and, and, and be a little bit more expressive. And, and I, I found that has been quite interesting. And then I think, actually, the movement has probably gone far too far the other way. You know, I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm bored of most early music at the moment, actually, because to be really honest, I, I find with a few exceptions, so many of the practitioners don't really take the scholarship seriously. It's a bit anything goes. It's all this sort of, constant need for novelty which is singers singing ever higher ornaments being ever more outrageous you know, god forsaken percussion everywhere um recorders <laughs> in lines all these sort of continual practice you know there are certain sort of you know it's in the government side of an opera i've got a little list except it's quite a long list uh you know things that are not i think a great musician can take all the scholarly information and make something of of it, of it and then become a very expressive musician I think often early music now has become a catalogue of cheap effects, and I think it's a pity. That is a pity, and it's it's interesting to see um, young people, uh, maybe 
we'll say young is musicians under the age of 40. <laughs> I'll put a random number out there. We That's do young st- for me. <laughs> <laughs> we have an increased number of younger generation of musicians actually very interested in period performance. A lot of major conservatories have a a program. <laughs> People are going to listen to this on audio, but I'm doing the two bunny ear quotes. A program yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for scholarship like that. Um, and I guess what I've always appreciated about your recordings is I can hear the blend of scholarship and emotion. And I think that that is not easily achieved. And it's something that... Um, I love teaching music history to my upper level piano students. It's actually my favorite thing to do because finally we get to dig into this scholarly aspect of what's the context of this music. Um, so I definitely agree with you. Because it's, it's not actually, I mean, yes, the process may be scholarly in that it involves reading, it involves research, it involves sort of brutally thinking. Um, but actually, isn't that, shouldn't that be part of the teaching as you said? And, and shouldn't it be part of good music making? You know, the idea that, so, you know, when I was at Manchester University, um, I, we had the Lindsay String Quartet as Quartet in Residence, and uh, the leader of uh, the Lindsay String Quartet, uh, who's a wonderful musician called Peter Cropper, sadly no longer with us, died really quite young, about my age, about 60-odd. Um, and he was an extraordinary person. I mean, the way he played Haydn was not to my taste, but he could tell you more about history of classical violin playing and could play classical violin you know he knew all about it and he decided to move away from it and I found that process was really interesting um he wasn't somebody who just did it that way because he felt he felt he needed to research think about it and then create his own way and I think I've done the same I mean the other thing to remember is that it was never written on stone that I would ever be a professional conductor when I was at university I had no idea really what being a professional conductor meant and it was very good for me to be involved in early music because really for the first 10 years of my life, I was very much a sort of chamber musician working with a lot of musicians, some of whom I still work with. And we all learned together. You know, we weren't able to go to music college and study early music. So there was a sort of hunger there um, and because we believed in it and because we loved it, we wanted to do it. Um, nowadays, I don't get me wrong, with a wonderful young musician, one of the great parts of my life is working with musicians. But there are certain musicians that, feel the real hunger to get into this way of music making. And there are some for whom it's just part of their portfolio career. And they can play a baroque violin perfectly nicely, thank you. But it's not something which particularly interests them. And I think that's all it shows. And certainly with Gabrielli's, even to this day, uh, you know, it is the centre of people who are really very serious. You know, we have people in the group who are, Absolutely fantastic musicologists as well as performers. We have people who, you know, Ollie Weber, our principal second violinist, who is you know, one of the leading, uh, uh, one of the leading uh, authentic string makers. You know, we we really go that serious. You know, we talk about uh, he's somebody who does a tremendous amount of research on not just playing a sort of omni baroque violin, but on string tensions and all those really very sort of uh, uh, high level work, which most baroque orchestras don't really bother with. They're sort of semi baroque, semi modern orchestras. You know, we're working again, trying to lead the way, working on real Baroque trumpets. Most of the Baroque trumpets that we love and hear on all those famous recordings, including some amazing playing by some fantastic British trumpet players, some of whom are, I hope, still friends. But this is not a Baroque instrument. It's an instrument developed in the 1960s and 1970s with finger holes. It's a half Baroque trumpet, half recorder. Um, And 
perhaps too late in my life, I've started working with Jean-François Madeuf, the fantastic uh, French virtuoso, who is one of the few players who plays a real prop, only with lip pleasure and no fingering. Uh, and once you go down that road, you realize there's so much to learn. Or looking back, you know, vocally, you know, we were the first group to uh, perform a Matthew Passion with solo voices. You know, this is a landmark statement recording, building on the fantastic work of uh, Drew Parrott and Joshua Rifkin. Um, you know, so we are a group that really takes that side of it very, very seriously. You know, um, not in not in a hair shirt way. I mean, we're 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 sort of quite fun. You know, we we get drunk in the pub sometimes. Don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> but it is a place where people are quite serious. It's not all about the maestro. You know, or certainly, particularly when we do Bach or earlier stuff, where it's very much on somebody's. My role is as a facilitator, interpreter to some degree establish the temperature of the performance, the historical musical parameters, but it's not to um, to over-dominate. Uh, and I can do that, I think, because, you know, not uniquely, but I'm one of the few sort of people who came up through the Baroque world. And I've had a very enjoyable and reasonably successful career as a mainstream symphony orchestra for 25 years now. So I know what real conducting is. And it's just a different thing. And it's great to war equim. It's great to do the, the great romantic. Um, I love doing particularly English repertoire, Elgar, all this sort of stuff. I know that role as a real conductor of the symphony orchestra is so different than that discrete role that you have to play in Baroque music. And to be honest, my only regret in life is that I was never really a good enough keyboard player to actually direct from the whole school. Which is really, I, or to be honest with you, also perhaps a little bit too lazy to bother to practice. <laughs> enough um i was never particularly interested in, in keyboard playing um you know I, I could play reasonably well as a student but, but not at a high professional level now i'm sure i could have worked myself to the degree where i could have probably stood in front of an orchestra and played adequately in continuo um but i didn't really want to be adequate and i also didn't want to feel i was always catching up with players in my orchestra who were much better than i were so i sort of always fought shy of doing that and sort of even in coronavirus COVID, you know, I sort of thought, is this my calling to spend 18 months practicing eight hours a day and seeing if I could get that keyboard playing up to decent standard? But it took me another day to think, no, I don't want to do this in my life. I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm just past. I'm just past. Well, we'll have to we'll have to let Richard Egar conduct from the harpsichord then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there, you know, there are some really good people out there who, who can do that very well. And not, not just Richard, but 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 many, many others as well. Or or, you know, you think of somebody like Trevor Pinnock, which I'm, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn when I say, you know, as he was a, a fantastic director in front of the harpsichord. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know well enough to have had this conversation, but I suspect he might even agree himself as a conductor. He never got that same sort of energy across the orchestra, or at least I never felt that way. Maybe I'm wrong. Trevor, I'm speaking out of turn. I'll buy you a beer. Um, but, you know, it, so it is a very different role. And uh, I think one should, one should really uh, admire it. It's true. Um, I want to talk about, um, we've talked about kind of the historical context of Baroque music. And I was recently listening to a podcast where they talked about how the medieval towns would have sounded. Literally the soundscape, church bells, town criers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, what do you think the choirs would have sounded like in the time of Bach and Handel? It's not something that my ear can perceive. What were they like? Um, yeah, really interesting question. So, I mean, uh, 
I think the most, just to bring it, just before I answer your question, I mean, I think the most interesting thing about the Renaissance or the Baroque period would be that music was sort of ubiquitous in the sense that probably on every street corner there was a, a bagpipe player or whatever, but it wasn't this sort of hideous, I think it might be hideous, you know, use of music every moment of the day, you know, when you go shopping, uh, God forbid, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you know, um, you know, music was always there, even if it was on the street for a function, it wasn't just background. And I think that is the, the most awful thing about our current world and the hardest thing we have to fight as musicians. Um, you know, that uh, line in the Bible, I'm not a religious person, but that, you know, they, uh, it's whichever psalm it is, says, you know, they have ears, but they hear not. And that is our, you know, that, that is our, our contemporary world. So what does the choir sound like? Well, we know everything, we know nothing. Um, <laughs> Love it. <laughs> firstly, let's think about Bach. Um, firstly, he didn't have choirs. We sort of know that. There are a few people who are still desperately, desperately trying to tell you that we did have choirs in the Baroque period. But the reality of the evidence is such that throughout the 17th and early 18th century, the German school, choral performance as we know it was very unusual. Um, so for Bach, a choir would have been four solo voices and occasionally four solo voices plus four piano singers. And that really is part of the tradition which starts way back with Pectorius and Schutz and goes through to Bechmann and Stronk and all those great. So it's part of that constant tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, the English tradition is different, certainly in the work in, 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 in Handel, um, where choruses did exist and we know numbers. So that's helpful. Um, they became more or less, um, you know, Handel's choruses in the oratories were essentially cathedral choirs. Um, and also with solo voices who would join, but, you know, so reasonably small groups of singers with boys on the top line as a general rule, slightly different in one or two other countries. Um, what did Bach's singers sound like? Well, there's a school of thought, you know, characterised by one or two of my senior colleagues, and one comes into mind, no names, which would have you believe that Bach was this great um, romantic genius, you know, struggling valiantly and heroically with this terrible backwater of Leipzig with hideously awful choir boys whose voices were breaking every five minutes. You know. I think it's a complete nonsense. Mm. You know, I think Bach's ensemble would, would have been an extraordinarily virtuosic group. Um, and I think you have to remember, for example, even the, the boys that he worked with, when I say boys, I mean, even his broken tenor um, bass voices were generally very young men of early 20s at most. Um, they were largely university students. Um, the boys had the advantage of studying and singing from a very young age and having singing in the choir loft with a great composer and a great trainer uh, every day of the week. Their voices generally broke much, much later, 16, 17, 18, not being un unusual. Mm. Um, so, you know, they had a maturity of physicality which enabled them to sing. They understood not just the musical style, but the importance of words, rhetoric, all those things that we never study anymore. So I think they were generally, most of the time, pretty good. Now, that's not to say there were difficulties, Bach had to provide music for four separate churches. Um, St. Thomas and St. Nicholas's Church had the, the concertists, the, the four main singers, usually alternate weeks, and I suspect they were generally pretty good. Um, the next church, whose name I can't remember, uh, 
Pin we know, um, they sang basically a simple motet and four-part chorales. Um, so that was a much lower standard. And then the, the, the last uh, church, which I think was the University Church of St. Peter's, um, they had, basically, he said the singers are really good enough to sing a very, very simple chorale. So there was a sort of graduation there. But I think the best singers are very, very good. Um, then when you, to slightly broaden it, when you, when you look at Handel, you know, I mean, I think we can really tell from the music and the description of the music that the, the solo singers there were traditionally very brilliant opera-trained singers. And we have a lot of treatises, a lot of information of how singers were treated. We have a lot of descriptions of how famous singers sung. And I don't think the human voice has changed massively in three or four hundred years, which is you know, a relatively short time in human uh, uh, development. So I think we can be fairly confident that the best of our current crop of Handelian opera singers would sing roughly in the same way as, as Handel's would. I think there were certain differences. I think a, a much more power of the word. Uh, I think the rhetoric of performance was much more important. Um, I think there were probably uh, more rigidly observed protocols of ornamentation, of gesture, certainly. So it was both extremely passionate, but also slightly more controlled. And I think probably that made it actually more passionate. Certainly the theatrical performances were much more staid than we would expect today, you know, where there's a sort of constant frenetic desire of the director, of course, which is an ahistorical concept, to create visual stimulation. Um, so I think that would have been different. And I think the, the power of that was would be such that a little change of texture would speak much more personally, as with Bach singers. You know, I think they knew every word of the Bible. So when an evangelist stressed something or when a chorale is sung with a different set of words, I think a lot of the congregation would have understood very much the, the meaning behind that. Just one other thing to say. Um, um, it's very clear that Leipzig was the very sort of epicenter of particularly strong form of pietistic Lutheranism in the 18th century. It was not an East German cultural backwater. Um, it was actually the crucible of invention, not just for Bach, but for a whole series of religious poets. And I think it was in that environment Bach absolutely flourished. And I think, you know, the, the way these um, audiences would have appreciated this, you know, the cantata or the passion was... The musical equivalent of the sermon and the cantata would have been half an hour long, the sermon would have been at least an hour. So, you know, they were very heavyweight, serious uh, Christians who could sort of understand a lot. And then, and there was also quite clearly a societal structure that, that sort of certain people went to certain churches and certain sort of lower class peasant type people went to other sorts of churches. So, I think, again, that's quite interesting. But one other thing to say about Leipzig, you, you, to bring this back to what your original question. Mm -hmm. um, for example, on Good Friday, when they did the Great Passions, and they were called the Great Passions even in, in those days, um, the whole of the city was locked down for the three hours of the service. The gates of the city were closed. You know, and this idea of a communal sense of worship, it wasn't something that you just went to. It was just a, it was the absolute centre. So the whole of the society was to some degree... Uh, connected with the sort of the, the ritual of religious worship through the year. And I find that quite fascinating as well. That is very interesting. And, you know, it's this has brought up a question that I kind of return to as a music educator. 
Um, I grew up uh, Lutheran um, and remain a practicing Christian today. And it's very interesting when I get students from uh, China or Taiwan or Hong Kong, um, particularly mainland China, where um, they haven't been introduced to the basics of the Christian faith. And then they are ready for a certain level of piano exam, which has a co-requisite history exam. And this history exam expects them to understand the parts of the mass. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I have to, I have to go back and I have to explain, um, well, a mass was on Sunday and you have yeah. to give like a little Easter kind of explanation about like why, what does communion celebrate? So my question for you is, um, for those, for people who, how do I phrase this? How can people who are not members or practicing the Christian faith, um, how do they understand Bach or sec, yeah. um, sacred music from that time? How is it understood? Because in okay, my context. Well, I think there are two things to say here, that um, whether one actually possesses religious belief and faith, for this discussion is actually relevant because the point of the matter is that for any understanding of the majority of Western culture, you have to presuppose some basic knowledge of religion. Religion is the single most important historical factor, which is in the development of every society. And it's not in any sense to suggest a superiority of Christianity, because every religion has its, its beauty and has its, uh, you know, has its personal commitments or lack of or whatever, you know, and there's, no, there's no hierarchy of religious belief and that's for everybody to find their own way. But if you're looking at almost all Western music, there is a religious connection. And even in the Romantic period, when we're not speaking against religion, it's from a basis of, of, of being anti-religious. Um, and it, it's very, very hard to think of any composer who didn't write in some form of religious uh, form. Um, and even the ones that professed atheism somehow needed to work through Christian, Christian uh, rituals even more than the rest. So I think it is very, very difficult. Um, if I were to try and get to the heart of classical Chinese music, uh, you know, I would find it very, very difficult without a real understanding of, of the history of, of Chinese culture um, and how it connects. And I think the danger, and I want to be very, very careful here because I'm not in any sense being racist or saying that people who are not Western or not of the Christian background cannot interpret uh, music because that's obviously nonsense. There are fantastic people from the East and from all over the world who can play sure. music. But I, I think there, there is a, an added need to go through that process of cultural assimilation, as there is for all of us. And possibly, you might even argue the other way around, that we take the religious side as Westerners perhaps too much for granted. Um, you know, one of the things I find really difficult um, is standing in front of a group of people and performing even an iconic, you know, piece, a uh, repertoire piece like the Matthew Passion. And I'm really, even when I'm working sometimes with really great singers who know Baroque music and, are, you know, I'm sometimes interested how much misunderstanding there is you know because people put religion in a box and of course the difference between lutheranism and catholicism over uh, three or four hundred years is, is absolutely vast and it changes even within churches and it was never uniform even on one particular moment in one particular town thank god there were always differences of opinion uh, and the way these pieces in, engage with that 
course, is really, really interesting. And even yeah, I'm looking at the moment of the dimension of Faust, you know, which yes. is extraordinary. So in some ways, it's, it's the ultimate religious piece and the ultimate anti-religious piece. You know? And of course, you know, where would Goethe be without the need to work in that romantic way within the Christian idea? Um, mm-hmm. and if there are certain things which would get the priest to disapprove. Absolutely. So I'm thinking particularly of he was despised from the Messiah. And I guess I mean, it was very interesting. I'm not sure if you saw this production. There was a group in Canada called Against the Green Theatre that redid Messiah. Um, they had indigenous languages and he was despised, was sang in French and Arabic um, by a wonderful um Canadian Syrian singer, and she made it about her mum and Islamophobia. And it started to make connections for me. So they changed the text, and I, I've never seen it be more universal. So it's very interesting to see how this music can be adapted as well for a very modern context. It was it's quite something. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, I, great. I mean, you know, I'm both always fascinated by those sorts of things and also sort of slightly irritated by them. In the mm-hmm. sense that I just feel there's, there's a little bit of an embarrassment that we have as Western people to actually own our own culture. Yes. And I sort of wonder whether, you know, there, of course, is a wonderful sense of universality in the Christian message, as there is in, in many religions. But I just beg the question without having seen this this production, uh, which may have been absolutely wonderful and illuminating for certain people. But I'm actually wondering whether we need to literally take it that far. Isn't yeah. this sort of sense of, of rejection and despisingness enough in any language within the rhetoric of the way Han affects it? Um, particularly the way he uses silence. You know, I mean, this is the the textbook piece, isn't it? Of Musica Poetica Rhetorica, you know, it's actually using the, the different ways of phrasing a very simple concept to underline a very strong and personal message. And of course, as you, I always forget whether it was Mrs. Delaney or Mrs. Silver who, who sang that first performance, it was one of the two of them, and they were both actresses. And I think it was Mrs. Delaney, and, and again, don't write in if I've got my singers wrong, but whichever singer it was, um, I think it was Charles Burney said she, her, her voice was paltry, but her powers of delivery would move every man to tears. Um, and it's very interesting, isn't it, how those uh, that that idea of 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 the the beauty of the text is more important actually than the beauty of the voice. Now that's not something which is a modern recording world, is it? You know, of course one no. likes it, um, but it does give you an idea of principles being very different in those days. That's very true. Um, I have traveled to a few early music destinations myself, including Handel's home in London, which I believe is on Bond Street or Oxford Street. I can never remember. I, I, it's off. It's near Oxford Street, and I think it may. It's, it's off Bond Street, and I can't remember where it is. It's also quite interesting because um, Jimi Hendrix lived in the loft. You probably know that as well. Um, and, um, <laughs> I mean, it's a fascinating place to go. Um, I sort of quite like that it's there because it is Handel's. Uh, house in London. I mean, in a sense, it's a complete pastiche because there was nothing left of the original house. So what you see gives a very good impression of the 18th century house. It's all it's all been built in the, I guess, what, 90s or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But it is very nice. Brook Street, 16 Brook Street. That's where it is, isn't it? That's yeah. Right. Um, um, 
I haven't been there for years, and it's just wonderful to have it there. Of course, there are you know, there's also the fantastic Andal House in Halle as well. Yes, um, and I was going to ask the other place that I've been is Basilico San Marco in Venice, which was such an amazing feeling. Um, are there any favorite early music destinations that you recommend to those of us who are dreaming of travel right now? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you can go to any great hall in in, in Europe, and there will always be, uh, you know, ghosts of the past when there. And obviously, working in San Marco is we've done many, many a few times is, is extraordinary. Um, when you try and use the 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 the, the, the performing spaces in a way that was done in the 60th and 17th century, which is not as it often is. Um, but also the other great place in Venice, of course, is um, the Scuola Grande di San Rocco, which is this extraordinary building full of Tintoretto and every, literally every surface. And it's sort of both utterly amazing and sort of ridiculously over the top in a crazy Baroque way. Um, but it's just a most wonderful building. And that, of course, is the great hall for which many of Gabrielli's great pieces were written. And we've been privileged to do one particular um, reconstruction of a 1608 performance there where we have fantastic descriptions. We've done that three or four times there now. Um, so that's a fantastic place. But wherever you go, I mean, there are always ghosts and it's amazing. You can still give concerts in theatres that, that Beethoven conducted in. You know, we, we've um, played in Salzburg and, and, and in places that Mozart or Beaver would have conducted in you know, conducted music in, and, and these things are, are, of course, wonderful. Um, you know, we did Handel in, in the church in which Handel was baptised in Halle, you know, these these connections are there. And what I rather like about being a musician is that one is very much aware of this continuation of culture, you know, and you're just a little speck in this sort of, the sands of time in music, you know, and, you know, maybe what I've done is enough to have a little footnote in a very small book somewhere. You know, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I think I'm a very good and instinctive musician, but I don't have the, the tiniest fraction of a percentage of the talent of a of a Briton or a Bach or a, or a Handel or a Fauré or whatever. You know, and however great you may be as an interpretive artist, it, it's composers who are absolutely in, in the in the pantheon in a different way. It's true. Um, I'm going to move away from early music for a little bit. And you have also worked on Elgar's amazing Dream of Gerontius. And that piece has so many um, performing forces, huge choir, huge orchestra. What are the logistic challenges for rehearsing a piece like that? How does one even get organized? <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting because I'm both responsible for some of the most sort of delicate and refined recordings that are out there. And I think particularly a lot of our choral recording, which is a sort of in, sort of almost like a sort of substream or a little hobby of mine, um, where we've, you know, recorded part songs and, and some of the great cathedral repertoire with very small forces. Um, we've done Matthew Passion, as I've said, you know, with tiny chamber forces. But I've also made a bit of a habit of um of Engaging with some of the really largest pieces in the repertoire, Britain's War Requiem, Gromis de Moore, Handel's Elijah, which we did with a choir of about 350. Um, wow. Which is how they did in the first performance in Birmingham in 1847. So, um, was it 46 or 47? I can't remember. One of the two years. I think it was 40. Um, anyhow, um, so how does one approach those pieces? Um, well, I mean, all music's chamber music is sort of where you start. You know, the reason I love conducting huge forces is that 
you have to use your ears, ears even more. And it's a different sort of musicianship. You know, you have to paint with a slightly bigger picture. But yes. don't be um, I'm also working very hard on Mahler 8 at the moment, which I've never actually conducted. And, you know, sometimes the bigger the piece, the more subtlety you need. And the danger, I feel, being a little bit critical, is a certain type of conductor who's a megalomaniac and power crazed, and there are one or two of them in the business, I suspect, somewhere, um, you know, are often drawn to those pieces because they like the sheer vulgarity of the noise. And that's great. There's nothing better than hearing four brass bands come in in the promise day more. I mean, it's just one of the most cataclysmic things in music, and it's just amazing to make that happen. Mm -hmm. But actually, in all these pieces, it's nearly always the soft moments, the delicate moments, where the heart of the music is put down. Um, and I think my background of, you know, of understanding the history of music, I never really planned to spend you know, 15, 20 years of my life largely doing broken Renaissance music and the occasional things elsewhere. And then suddenly at age 40-odd, sort of going into the whole of the mainstream and, and slightly leaving the rock world behind a bit and now sort of coming back into it a little bit which is nice you know in my old age um so you know it's that background of detail of, of trying to i mean I, i'm fascinated by how the orchestra works you know uh, and, and obviously to paint on that bigger canvas is fantastic and then on the odd moments that you can do some of this music i mean we've just issued a huge recording of english coronation music where we were actually using you know early 20th century uh instruments you know and, and this it's amazing even in sort of 50 years the latest piece was 53 for the Queen Elizabeth's coronation aren't we and even in well 60 years now you know it's, it's extraordinary how much instruments have changed the colors that the orchestra makes you know so there's so much one could do to get back to Gerontius yeah I mean it's strange I, I the piece completely evaded me for 20 years 25 oh, years oh goodness I never got it. I completely never got it. And then I went to a performance in a festival I was promoting. I wasn't conducting. I just went to the performance. And I suddenly thought, what? How, how could you not adore this piece? Yeah, it was like, really, it was a, a, you know, a Damascene moment. I just suddenly thought, yeah. And then from there, very quickly, I became really, really sort of fell in love with Elgar. And I think that's something I'd say to a lot of musicians and music lovers as well as performing musicians. You don't like a piece of music keep listening and then leave it 10 years and come back again. You know, most music is good. Yes, it is. If you don't get it, it's not a fault, but don't assume the music's bad. Assume that you need to find your own way in. Um, I love that. I, I love it. You know, I think that's really, really important. I mean, still have one or two composers that I find really difficult. Martin, for example, don't get it. Just don't quite get it. That's one of the big holes in my life. Um, I don't get Janacek. Uh, the operas, I, I get, yeah, yeah. No, I get the operas. I, I, I've never conducted them, and, uh, you know, it's really complicated music. But I think, and we talk about Gerontius, I mean, it is absolutely one of my favourite pieces. Um, you know, if I were to have, you know, another week on this earth, I would like to spend it conducting Gerontius, you know, which would be appropriate enough. Um, it's a universal story that people can buy into it, even yes, if they don't yes. subscribe to the version of, you know, quite extreme Catholicism, which is which it represents. Um, but there is something about the humanity of that music which transcends uh, in, in a quite extraordinary way. Um, and it is one of those pieces I studied for 10 years before I conducted it. I probably only conducted it six or seven times in my life. Uh, 
and it never leaves you. Every bar is there, you know. And once you you get there, you it, it's the most extraordinary powerful. I mean, the other two great oratorios, of course, the Apostles and the Kingdom, are much much harder. They're harder technically, but they're also harder emotionally to connect with unless you have a real understanding of the deep philosophy and religious philosophy behind the theology behind those pieces. I don't think they will ever be popular pieces, which is a tragedy because they have some of the most outstanding music we ever wrote. I mean, the beginning of the apostles is really one of the, the most poetic, you know, that extraordinary moment with offstage oboes, which is just the whole of the world of the East just unfolds before your eyes, or the ascension at the end, which is just the great apotheosis of belief. Uh, you know, and, and so there's, there's, so, there's so many great things there. But you know, you have to be prepared to suspend your disbelief in Catholicism or whatever it happens to be that's preventing you getting there. You know? yeah. um, but they're wonderful. And also, I just love the complexity. I mean, they're really the way. Elgar uses the orchestra is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it, you know, it's sort of Straussian, but it, it's, I think, to be even better than Strauss. Um, and what is also extraordinary with Elgar's use of the orchestra is that he was in almost entirely self-taught. And the way he does things, the way he divides the orchestra, the way he, the way he writes for strings is just absolutely extraordinary. You know? yes. So, you know, and the way he writes for chorus, I mean, it's just quite wonderful. Those choruses. In, in Gerontius and indeed in the other auditories are, are, are just a complete gift and really worth working on. Sounds great. I'm going to conclude our interview with two questions about uh, music education. It's one of our big, big focuses here at our concert series. And as I was doing my research for our chat, um, you've collaborated with youth choirs and youth orchestras. So how, how has this been central to your work as a conductor? And um, not every conductor makes time for this. So, first of all, thank you for doing that. <laughs> well, you don't have to thank me. I mean, I do it absolutely because I passionately believe in it. And, I mean, on one level, it's always great to hear a great conductor talk about the importance of music education. On the other hand, sometimes I get a little bit tired of people talking the talk and not walking the walk, you know? And... I think not every conductor has the skills of working with young people. And to be honest with you, without bragging, I'm really good with young people, but it's not something I ever had to work on. Uh, you know, it's something which I feel so passionately, and that's why young people connect with me very quickly. You know, I'm a, a balding bastard, as I say. It's <laughs> 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 a terrible language on your podcast. Um, you know, uh, I can connect very, very easily. I've never really lost the inner teenager in me, you know, for better and for worse um, and I can be absolutely frighteningly demanding, um, but it's always done with real respect and real love. And I think if we really respect young people, we actually should push them incredibly hard because they're capable of doing it. No young person wants to hear, you're doing quite well considering you're young. They want to do the real thing. So we don't have an education project. We actually ask um, young singers from various choirs in the UK, youth choirs, many of them from actually quite difficult social areas to come and sing with us on stage. And we work them ridiculously hard. We take we do courses sometimes. And we begin the week with them being completely incredulous about what the hell is this about? You can see it in some of their eyes. And by the end of the week, they, they just, they've grown about three foot. Um, um, that's actually one of the most beautiful things to see, not just 
their gaining of skills, but to see their personal confidence often just going leaps and bounds. And I, I just feel, you know, for me, it is the work of which I'm most proud because, you know, I love music and, you know, yeah, I want to have a, I've been privileged to work with some of the, the greatest orchestras in the world. You know, it's great. It doesn't matter whether it's, I don't know, Leipzig Van Hals or the Sydney Symphony, or, or I was working in Montreal recently, a fantastic orchestra there. You know, I, I work all over the world with some really great orchestras and I'm privileged and honoured to do that. But somehow there's a sort of, what I love about kids is they don't really know or care whether you're famous or not. They actually want to know whether you can actually get what they need out of a process. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and that I sort of like. And, you know, if you can get a group of young people really working with you, it's the most fantastic experience. Um, it doesn't always work. There are odd moments where I think it's had enough of me, <laughs> which is why chorus directors But I think it's really fantastic what we do, and I think we've shown. I mean, I guess it's probably the same in Tanzania, it's the same in every country, isn't it? But music, if we're not careful, becomes a very middle class pursuit, and I don't think any of us wants it to be that way. But inevitably, if you need to have instruments and you need to. Um, pay for tuition and you need to have parents who are prepared to keep the child going when they don't want to practice the violin. It becomes a very middle-class pursuit and it's wonderful when people without that background somehow still manage to find their music but there isn't, it's not an accident why when I look at most of my choirs in the UK, you know, most of them are private school kids and I find that really a bit sad not because they're not nice people or good singers but because I'm thinking about 7% of our educated population in the UK, what's happened to the other 93%? So I'm quite political, you follow me now. You know, um, and I, we, we have to try a bit harder. And, you know, I'm not Christian Tillman or Simon Rappel or, you know, not one of the, the, the sort of, you know, um, Bernard Heiting, sadly, now retired. You know, I'm not one of the, the top 10 conductors in the world. But, you know, I have a certain degree of prestige and a certain degree of uh, notoriety. And I just feel very, very passionate that, I have to use that as much as I can to to push as hard as I can politically for better music teaching and also to actually support some amazing teachers out there, you know, who are doing the most incredible work sometimes in the most difficult scenario with kids who are really challenged. And they're, they're just giving amazing opportunities to these kids out of belief in music and the power of music and the love of these young people. And I want to support them and I want to help give them the same sort of thing. But this, you know, it tells you that kids can't deal with classical music and they, they, you know, they would find Elgar or Mendelssohn or, or Bach or Brahms difficult. They're just talking complete nonsense. They're hiding behind the fact they're not very good teachers. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very evangelical about this. If we seriously think we can educate young people and not connect them with culture in the broadest of senses, and that includes great literature, great art, but it has to also include great music. It's not good enough to say we're going to do, you know, uh, a compositional workshop, you know, on a, uh, a little oratorio which we're going to make on saving the whale. That might be a useful process, but to actually provide kids access to the, the great minds that have walked the planet, you know, would we ever teach science without, you know, thinking about what Darwin or Newton or Fleming did? Uh, unfortunately, picking some English people, um, but you know what I mean. Uh, it, it, we, preposterous you know i mean we do try and teach english without reference to shakespeare even that's you know now 
something to be challenged. You know, we 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 have to find ways of engaging people with great culture. And you know, and I know that kids have a you know they have a sixth sense for quality. If you're a good teacher, they they will they they know even when you don't quite understand everything. And they'll follow you, you and they'll trust you. So something I often say to I think one of the most wonderful things is young adults. And they say to me sometimes, when I was young, you were going on and on about blah, 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 whatever it was. And I didn't get it, but now I get it. You know, and I love that idea that you sow something into a child's mind. Mm-hmm. And some of them will get it there. And some of them, and these are things also which and I don't teach music. Um to make great musicians. I'm not interested if they end up with another symphony orchestra or they end up singing and go, really. You know, if that happens, that's great. That's love and marvelous. I actually want to change minds. I want people to feel that music is something which helps them get out of bed in the morning, which makes them realize that their own joys and their own darknesses as human beings have been shared by human beings throughout the centuries. That is what culture is. That is what art is. And we can express that in thousands of ways. It could be music, it could be poetry, it could be literature of any kind or sculpture or art. But if we don't connect young people with that sense of the vitality of culture, I think we are absolutely denying them the most important tool in their lives. I couldn't say it better. <laughs> we completely agree. And we we try to make our concerts very affordable. Um, and I noticed in your in your biography, you mentioned, um, or it's been mentioned in your biography, a phrase, democratizing the arts. And that just really, that jumped out at me on the screen as a wonderful phrase. And I think you've just described that, you know, how- Well, we have to a- try. Yeah, I'm, I'm one person, I wish I could do more. I, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I honestly, I want to scream because I see this country, which at one time, you know, was going in the right direction, going in the wrong direction probably not the only country in the world thing we could say that. But the harder it gets, the more important this is, you know, because we're actually bringing up a generation of people who know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. Um, and, and this moral vacuum, and I mean this in the broadest of senses, um, is, I think, the reason why we're in such a mess politically. If we start talking about that, we'll be here till Christmas. <laughs> we'll, have a, we'll have episode two where we can talk about current political situations and their impact on the arts. <laughs> well, yeah. Or the lack of arts and the impact on the political situation. But anyhow, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm certainly, you know, having hit that big birthday earlier this year, not last year now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm serious about this. I probably will be spending at least half my time working with company. I'm really happy to do that. Mm-hmm. It's an honor and I, I really enjoy it. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been such a fantastic conversation and a real honor to meet you and to speak with you and some truly inspiring comments about music education. And it was great to talk about box choirs and the different congregations with their levels of music. And um, we just want to thank you again. Uh, our guest today was Paul McCreesh. He's the artistic director of the Gabrielli Concert and Players. and his discography is just brilliant. Please find and purchase their recordings anywhere that you purchase music. <laughs> and thanks nice. again. No, great pleasure. It's very nice to talk to you, Jennifer. And uh, if I hit the uh, the wild west of Canada, I'll be sure to uh, drag you out. And then you can buy me the beer. <laughs> that sounds wonderful. That sounds great. 
Thank really you nice so much. Yeah, thanks, thanks everybody for listening. Bye. Thanks.